Welcome, everyone, to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Byron Pace. It is Thursday, the 5th of March, 2020, and I'm in Northern Ireland for this one, recording a show with Alex Rogers, who is the gamekeeper at the Irish Grouse Conservation Trust. He is the only full-time employed gamekeeper in Northern Ireland, and we're going to be hearing all about the conservation work that they are doing to restore a landscape back to its former glory. They just picked up the Gold Purdy Award for Conservation, so we're going to be hearing a little bit about that as well. As always, we would like to thank the people who help make this show possible, and that is our Patreon supporters. And our top-tier supporters this week include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom Craith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, and the guys at South Esher Stalking. A big apology to Chris Griffith... John, Henry, Pete, and the guys at South Esh Stalking, because for the last two weeks, I completely left them off the thank you list. They are three of our supporters who paid for an entire year all in one go, and so we're not on a new list that I made up to make sure I didn't forget anybody, so I completely failed in that regard, but hopefully I'm making up for it now. I also have another apology, because I completely screwed up the Guess the Sound competition two weeks ago. Uh, I said that the previous sound had been um, a hippo, and it hadn't at all. It was a capricaylee, which sounds nothing like a hippo. Uh, if you would like to know what the sound was from two weeks ago and the winner, it was, and I think pretty much all of you got this right to a greater or lesser extent, it was a carrion crow. And the winner, picked at random from a list of correct entries, is James Winrow, who was also somebody who pointed out that I had completely messed up the previous competition. So thank you very much, James. Uh, I had realized, but you weren't the only person to point that out. You are the winner of the latest issue of Modern Huntsman, which is volume four. Now, for those of you who pay careful attention on social media, you will see that pre-orders for volume five are now available and we are doing a reprint. So there are currently pre-orders for all the old issues. So you can now get your hands on volume one and volume two, which have been out of stock for a while. Head over to thepacebrothers.com and click on the shop and you'll be able to see all of the options available there, including a very cool box set for the first four issues. We are going to give the Guess the Sound competition a break this week, but I'm still going to give you an opportunity to win a copy of Modern Huntsman. And I'm not even going to restrict it to the latest issue. We are going to open it right up now that we are doing reprints. The only thing is that you might have to wait a little while until they actually arrive back in the UK. Uh, but whoever wins this week, you can pick whichever volume you want. So if you happen to be missing one, now is your opportunity to fill that gap. What we are going to do is anybody who helps by supporting us on Patreon uh, from now until the next show goes out in two weeks' time will be entered along with all of our previous supporters uh, into a pile and I will randomly select somebody next week and one of you will have the chance to tell me which volume of Modern Huntsman you would like to have sent out to you. So you can help support us for as little as one dollar. So 
we're not asking for a huge amount and all of the support makes a massive difference for us to be able to create these shows. So head over to Patreon forward slash Pace Brothers, show us some support, and in two weeks' time, one of our supporters, either new or old, will win a copy of Modern Huntsman. Now, I've been mentioning this on the last couple of shows, 8th and 9th of May 2020, Yorkshire Events Centre, it is the Northern Shooting Show. It will be the first show that uh, we are going to this year. I can't wait. It is not far away from where I sit right now. Uh, it's going to be a great show because it always is. I completely screwed up the website address that I gave two weeks ago. Um, so just Google the Northern Shooting Show, and it is the first thing that comes up to read all the information and how to buy tickets. Uh, I look forward to seeing you there. Look me out. And I think that's about it for me. Uh, let's jump straight into the show. Alex, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. You've been kind enough to show me around the estate today mm-hmm. in a very wet Northern Irish winter. We're not quite in spring. Yeah, yeah. It's def- Thanks for arranging the weather for me. It was very good of you. It's definitely not been the rest of days today. <laughs> it's been pissing down the rain <laughs> all day. Uh, but it's uh, it's been an amazing opportunity to come here. And I've still got a full day tomorrow, which is supposed to be better. So I'm hopefully going to actually see some of the hill because most of it was covered in like fog and low cloud all day. We first met two weeks ago, I think, or yeah. three weeks ago. Fourth of February. Oh, well, there you go. You've remembered it. <laughs> At the Purdy Awards evening yeah. for the Purdy Awards. Yeah. Um, and when we had met, it was like before the announcements of the winner, so you didn't know that you'd won yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't heard of the Purdy Awards, you can look up all of the previous year's winners on the Purdy website, purdy.com. Go and locate the About Purdy tab, and all of the info is on there. The awards were set up and established in 1999 by the famed gunmaker James Purdy and Sons, who are arguably the most famous and respected gunmaker in the world. And even back in the late 90s, the company realized that there was a need to recognize the value of shooting in conservation, where indeed it legitimately occurred, because otherwise it would be very hard for the public to appreciate its place in modern culture. They wanted to highlight and promote the good work in conservation being done across the whole country on the back of shooting interests. And so the Purdy Awards were born with an open invite to submit evidence of positive improvements for ecosystems and wildlife. Today, it is a revered achievement, recognized across the whole country as a gold standard of what progressive, sustainable hunting should aspire to be. The the process began um, because we, we were originally um, a, an entry yeah, years ago. Um, we, we'd applied, I think it was back in 2011 um and we'd got through to the final stage and we'd been awarded uh, uh the bronze um which was absolutely like brilliant you know it was it was an amazing achievement um but the way everything's um the successes that we've had just in the past or since 2011 the project's grown and it, it's it's gone from sort of you know um quite quite low to to quite a high achieving you know yeah. more in you know many aspects um so uh yeah we decided to to put in put in for it again uh and hopefully you know fingers crossed we we would have liked to have uh 
uh, got gold, um, and, and you did, and yeah, amazingly enough, yeah, we'd we'd, we'd won gold. So quite a quite a room of people to be presented with something. I mean, yeah. it was it was the Duke of Wellington's house. Yeah, Duke of Wellington's uh, number house. one London. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> number one London. And, Imagine that being your postcode. Yeah. And I, I'd also been told that the paintings uh, up on the walls, if they were to sell one of those paintings. Um, that would have covered the cost to knock the house down and rebuild it again. So here is a little bit of British history for you. The Duke of Wellington was one of the leading military and political figures in 19th century Britain, serving twice as Prime Minister, and famously defeated Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo. Many of the paintings that were on the walls of the Knight of the Purdy Awards celebrated this very victory. Although it has to be said, he seemed to have a strange fascination with collecting portraits of Napoleon. I wasn't entirely sure if this was the Duke of Wellington's way to gloat in victory, or it was some sort of reverence to his greatest adversary. Who knows? Yeah, I, did, I um, didn't know. That, I mean, so. the oil paintings, and they were amazing. There was one oil painting which was like, I don't know. I mean, it must have been five meters yeah. wide. Yeah, and it was of the last, the last time they had a dinner celebration. Yeah, that's the dog flapping its ears. The last time they had a dinner celebration um, for the uh, Battle of Waterloo. Yeah, yeah, which was everybody in their red jackets yeah, celebrating yeah. victory. Yeah, no, yeah, incredible room. Yeah, brilliant room, and uh, and luckily, um, my one of my bosses, uh, Peter Mackey, who's who's the chairman uh, of the Irish Grouse Conservation Trust. Um, he came with me, and I think he was probably he, he was he was more excited to. To, to be able to go into Asplay House for the first time, um, he uh, he was uh, very much like myself. He he was he was optimistic. He didn't know whether we'd been would or where we'd been placed. Um, it was uh, it was a close call. Um, the the reasons for the doubts were more because of uh, Peter Mackey's previous experience when uh, putting in for the Purdy Award. Um, the last time when they'd been awarded the bronze, there was a lot more contact. Oh, and, really? And they kept ringing up um, and and asking, if, "Have you definitely booked your flights? You, you know, you're definitely coming over." <laughs> and uh, and this time there was absolutely nothing. It was uh, an <laughs> you just had a date. An invitation was sent through, and we'd heard nothing else back. So um, I know Adrian had also thought the same thing as well, and he he was like, "Oh no, you know, the, the, they've not been in contact like they were last time," and. You know, I'm not sure about this. So, just with that uh, sort of glimmer of doubt, like the you know, to be awarded the gold just made it even more special. Just to rewind a little bit and explain the Purdy Awards, uh, why I mean, it's it's a big deal. Yeah, like in terms of you know conservation awards given in the UK, it's yeah. one of the most prestigious. Uh, why is it a big deal? What's the application process like? Because it's quite involved. Yeah, from yeah. My understanding. Like, I mean, like, because the competition's set so high, you know, you're up against some of the best um, estates or farms, you know, in in the UK. Um, so the a- application process it, it's pretty stressful because you're trying to cram as much as you possibly can into one um, document. Mm, it's like the Michelin star yeah, of conservation yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. So so um, you know we'd uh, we definitely hadn't rushed it. Um, we we didn't want to rush it. Um, we had thought about sending in an application um, in 2018, um, but 
we just wouldn't have had the chance to get a document together um, that we thought would be uh, suitable enough, you know, um, for for the award. Um, and uh, so we ha- we decided to hold back and um, we had maybe six or seven months time to work um, on, on the application itself. Uh, we had a lot of help um, through the, you know, from each and every one of the directors uh, of the IGCT. Um, IGCT Irish Grouse Conservation Trust. Okay, clock so, that. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So they'd had a huge input. It was a team effort um, because the project has been running since um, two thousand and eight. Uh, we had a lot to get in there. Um, you know, for ex- you know, like the most you know the most crucial thing that we you know we had that had to be obviously be in in the application was the fact that. Um, the grouse moor uh, only only had five pair. You know, there was there was only uh, you know, at the very early stages of, of the project there was a grouse count conducted, um, and there was only five pair of grouse on on the entire hill. Okay, so the I'm, I'm going to pause here for a second because that's yeah. quite staggering. We we've talked about a lot of things which we're going to cover again today yeah. in the podcast, but that's that you never. You never mentioned when we were driving on right. five pair, ten grouse. Yeah, on yeah. this whole place. Uh, on yeah, on the on the entire place. So the the, the place is seven thousand acre. Um, good heather ground would be a, a thousand, maybe eleven hundred acres. And historically, there would have been a lot more grouse here. His, historically, this was probably one of the best grouse moors in the whole of Northern Ireland. Um, so what what happened? What happened? Um, when you say historically, what fifties, forties? Yeah, or? like like back in the fifties, um, da- down at the the estate, down at Glenarm Estate, um, there's Lord Dunluce still has the the original, you know, the real old game book, yeah, uh, which dates back to like the twenties, um, and like there's there's still records in there of grouse being shot off Glenwary up to a hundred brace days, um, so you know it has the has always been shot and and managed for grouse um up to maybe i think it was maybe the the 70s when there was just a complete lapse in any um gamekeeping uh, predator control so like, all the formal management that's yeah. associated with driven grouse yeah. shooting had uh, ceased that's right any any form of upland management other than a bit of sheep grazing you know that that was it was all you know all finished um forestry up to um two to two and a half thousand acres of forestry was planted um, on the ground oh, sorry on the on the heather moorland on the heather moorland so that had obviously taken a huge size of the hill as well um but um as well as that it had also um attracted a lot of predators uh, to the area and when you say predators what, what are we talking give people an idea of what is classed as a, as a predator yeah. here in northern ireland so uh, our main main issue um for here for for glenwerry itself would would be the fox you know the the foxes are, are through the roof you know there's there's no no other um estate that uh, or hill that manages uh you know the hill for grouse that would have to um, have to deal with the extreme level of, of predation by fox. Um, the fox population, just in Northern Ireland itself, um, is absolutely incredible. Um, it's gone from being quite a low, you know, low population 
in say like the 70s and 80s um and then during the 90s it's just you know the populace population has just you know raised you were giving me a uh an amazing little anecdote of how rare it was to see a fox back in those days yeah. which is complete contrast to now yeah yeah just t- t- tell me that story again so yeah. everybody can hear it um Jack Ray, who who's still here, is eighty five now, uh, and he just lives in he lives in a little cottage up the road, um, and he always tells me if, you know a few old stories of back in the day. He can remember when uh, the grouse you know were here. Uh, he can remember beating when he was a young lad. Um, he he once told me a story. Um, his his father was was out tracking in the snow, and um, he he come across fox fox tracks and uh he followed them uh right across the hill for about um maybe just over half a mile um and he found a rock and the fox had actually gone underneath this rock and he'd gone to stand on top of the rock and a fox had bolted from underneath his feet um, and he'd shot it um and for days after that you know there was every farmer in antrim and the antrim glens were coming to Jack's house um, <laughs> just just to see this fox because it was such a rarity. It, it was so rare. Mm. Um, you know, I it, bet nobody comes to see your foxes now. No, no, <laughs> no, no one, no one's interested in foxes anymore <laughs> <laughs> because they're just they're so abundant. Yeah, they're so, I mean, like they're they're everywhere. Um, they're a real pest now. Uh, back in you know back when Jack's father uh, was a keeper, I, I dare say it was maybe a privilege to to shoot a fox um or even see one so uh and since then uh they they've just completely got out of control um, I wonder what the reason is for that I, I think it's a multitude of reasons I think one um farming's a lot more intense now than what what it was you know, back in the 50s and 60s there's a lot more livestock out on the hill um there's a lot more uh there's a lot more food source for them uh there's you know a lot of ewes do die um, and not all the time if they are out in the middle of the hill because it's so remote, you might not be able to get off, get them off within a couple of days. So, um, you know, the, wherever there's sheep, there's, there's vermin. Yeah. You know? um, there's, yeah, yeah it, just even with the forestry alone will have you know housed uh, you know a lot more foxes by just creating the shelter for them to, yeah, to just, den in and, yeah yeah that's it and what about other types of predators predators ravens are really bad okay. extremely bad um gray crows they're quite bad as well um gray crows are quite easily dealt with uh, we'd be up to maybe 200 gray crows a year which, so, which come under, a, a, I assume, the, your version of the general license here. So there are vermin species which you can control yeah, without yeah. additional permitting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, hooded crows are on the general license. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we often, you know, when we're discussing uh, predation control on grouse moors, it's it's very obvious that the the main incentive is for the harvesting of grouse. But you've given me loads of amazing examples as we've been driving around today, and you've been showing me different types of, of habitat management and telling me some of the history of how this period of decline in management of the area has affected a whole array of species beyond grouse. Yeah, yeah, like. The, the curlew, for example, they're in the, the curlew population in Northern Ireland is 
Um, it's it's hit rock bottom. It's worth pausing on Curlew for just a moment. I don't think that there is a bird in the uplands which brings a bigger smile to my face than when I hear the call of the Curlew. It is one of our most rapidly declining breeding birds and has shown a 46% decline across the United Kingdom between 1994 and 2010. The species was added to the UK Red List in December 2015 and it is argued to be the bird of greatest conservation concern here. We hold a fifth of the world's curlew over winter, and around a quarter of the world's breeding pairs in spring and summer. So what happens to curlew here has substantial consequences for the future of the species. There are a myriad of reasons for their decline, and a lot of this is focused around land use changes, as is true of many species around the world, but they enjoy a haven of respite in managed grouse moors in particular, which have some of the highest breeding densities in the country. And this has been proven time and time again, even with collaborative research. It is worth checking out a paper from 2010 by Fletcher and his colleagues, which reported on an eight-year study into the effects of controlling predators for ground-nesting birds. They showed that with lapwings, golden plover, and curlew, they fledged more than three times as many young when predator control took place than when it didn't. And if you'd like to read this full paper, originally published in Applied Ecology, you can find the link in the show notes on our website, thepacebrothers.com. There's only a few pairs that are are fledging, you know, a very low number of chicks. we have a huge success story here because of our upland management um, and grouse management. The the curly flourish here. Um, it was only just back in two thousand and seventeen we had our first successful nest of curlew, um, and that was the first time curlew had fledged chicks successfully off the, off the estate in twenty years. That's, um, that's crazy. 20 years. 20 years, yeah. And b- because of predation? Uh, because, yeah, I mean, predation's been that bad. Um, so they they would they might have nested, but you just weren't getting... They, 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 they weren't were, fledging. They, they weren't, you know, they were struggling to to, to survive. You know, they, they would quite easily hatch eggs. You know, that wouldn't be that, you know, the habitat was there for them. Um, but I think, you know, it was getting to a stage where the chicks weren't even... Getting cha- you know they weren't getting chance to to hatch, um, they they were they were just getting you know as soon as a curlew would would lay its clutch, you know it, it was there's no, absolutely no record um, in the twenty years before that of of chicks even you know being being recorded here, um, which tells us that they probably weren't even getting to chick stage. Hmm. Wow. And you were also telling me um, something interesting about merlins today as well, yeah, so, which is an incredibly small, agile little bird of prey that yeah. most people probably have never seen. Yeah, so well, the merlin, as you know, is one of the smallest bird of, birds of prey in the world um, and are uh, predominantly uh, or always known historically to be a ground-nesting bird. Mm. Um, a, bit, a bit like um, hen harriers. A bit like the hen like harriers. So one of the very few... Uh, bird of prey species that actually nest on the ground um in northern ireland it, it's been um they, they found well they found very few merlin nests at all uh probably due to the level of predation um merlins obviously 
are also not safe to be able to to defend their young uh, or defend their clutch. Yeah, because foxes and rats and corvids will take an, an nest of Merlin or Hen Harry. It's just yeah. the same as they'll um, raid yeah. an, an nest of Curly. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, they they still they you know they still provide a meal for for carrion. Um, so uh, what what's been uh, recorded over the like recent years is uh, Merlin is starting to use old crow nests actually in trees. Um, there hasn't actually been a a ground nesting pair of merlew recorded in Northern Ireland for the past twenty years. That's crazy. So, and yet in other parts, like on Scotland and, and England, where you do find merlin, it'll predominantly be ground nest. Yeah, all, all the time. Can. The management's there. It's been there for uh, you know a hundred plus years, so it's never been an issue for them. Whereas here they seem to have adapted. Um, it's amazing that how yeah. nature will find a way. And we were discussing this earlier. I wonder whether that's just the birds that survived were the ones that, for whatever reason, decided we're going to make a nest in an abandoned crow nest. Yeah. And so the fledglings from that nest had that kind of imprinted in them and that's where they went back to nest. Yeah. And the ground nesting birds just didn't survive. Yeah. Merlin are a freaking cool little bird. So little, in fact, that they are the UK's smallest bird of prey. In winter, the population that we have here increases dramatically as we get most of the Icelandic breeding birds migrating to our warmer climate. Although the population has recovered from its crash in the late 20th century, it's still on the red list of species. Currently, we have recorded between 900 and 1,500 breeding pairs in the UK. Males can weigh as little as 125 grams, which isn't even the weight of half this can of Coke that I'm holding in my hand right now. Handbirds do weigh a little bit more and can be up to 300 grams. Their Latin name? Falco columbarius. It, I mean, it, even the hen harrier, for example, um, they're in the you know same situation with uh with the level of of like predation they're not doing very well either um do you have you have them here uh we, we have we we struggle in the whole of northern ireland to have any successful um nests of of hen harrier there's i think it's 94% of uh nesting hen harriers all fail due to predation that's an insane statistic yeah it make, yeah, I mean, that's, to survive with a 94% mortality rate due to uh, predation before you've even had a chance to yeah. go and start like hunting for yourself yeah. uh, isn't a really great place to start. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose this is probably a good place to stop to paint a picture of what this project is. So yeah. we know that it was historically managed. There'd been this long sort of fallow period with very little management going on. And, and I think that's, that's true across almost all of Northern Ireland, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. So what... Where we are sitting right now, uh, which is the basis for the application for the Conservation Party Awards, um, how did it? How did it start? What's the history behind this five to seven thousand acres and a thousand odd acres of grouse moor that you are essentially responsible for for managing? Yeah, originally uh, it all started back in uh, two thousand and seven when. Uh, red grouse in in the whole of Ireland became a red listed species, which is a different species to the one we have. It's yeah. very closely related, but yeah. it is it's distinctly different. That's right. It's actually quite controversial because it, there's there's a debate 
whether um, the Irish grouse are a subspecies uh-huh. or, or not, uh, a lot of people would say that oh, they're the same as the Scottish bird. But um, to look at them, which I saw one today, just as we were driving, I couldn't tell any difference. Yeah, it, in in appearance, uh, there's absolutely you know there's there's no difference. Um, I dug into the taxonomy of grouse a little bit for this, and to be honest, it's still not that clear. Red grouse in the mainland, which is where I'm used to seeing them. Lagopus lagopus scoticus is a subspecies of the European willow grouse, but the Irish grouse is argued to have enough genetic separation to warrant being identified as a subspecies, although there are some people who disagree with this. And their Latin name, Lagopus lagopus hibernica. Yeah, I've not haven't quite put my finger on it yet, but there's there's just something quite you know, something a little bit different. So um yeah, going back to uh how the project was originally founded. Uh, Lord Dunluce, he owns the shooting rights for the entire uh, estate. So uh, he himself, he and his father, they always used to shoot grouse here uh, back in the 50s and 60s. And they're, they're extreme countrymen and conservationists. They've always had um, a, strong, a strong love for the conservation that, uh, exists on shooting estates and uh, up on the moors. So uh, he decided that he wanted to do something about the depleted grouse population. And uh, he felt as though he was, uh, you know, he was going to be the the sort of the main driver in reviving the grouse population. And I mean, he's done extreme, extremely well so far. Um, and him and his friends, uh, there's maybe six of them now, uh, six originals anyway. Uh, Peter Mackey, who's now the chairman, uh, he is also uh, one of the main drivers as well. He's really taken this project from um, from where it started to where it is now. There's been a lot of money put in, you know, to, to get a project to where it's come from to here now. Uh, unfortunately, there has to be a lot of money involved. So... Um, you know they've done so much for not just the grouse but for the whole biodiversity you know on the project that it's the success here truly lies with them um so they 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 decided that they needed a, a grouse keeper um the only way of reviving the population they knew there had to be some form of habitat management and predator control. Because they they'd had like 50, 60 years of nothing. Yeah. And being able to see what the outcome of that was. Yeah, that's right. Huh. And and they know that the, you know, the professionals of the the uplands, the, the guys who really know how to manage moorland are, are grouse keepers. Um, so uh, that didn't take too much deciding for them at all. They, you know, they put their heads together and like, right, we we need a we need a keeper. Um, so they they employed uh, a keeper from Scotland, um, and he come over, and he was uh, he really got the project, you know, going. Uh, he put a lot of effort in. Um, for example, the burning he got really he really did get stuck into that, uh, and the predators. He did extremely well. Uh, thermal imaging wasn't a, a popular, um, it wasn't the, the kind of tool that was affordable uh, back in 2010. Yeah. Uh, so he was he was managing just uh, on his own, um, 
using old-fashioned methods just with the lamp and um, the odd snare and things like that and uh, the project started to take off and it each year through the pair counts uh, through the summer brood counts each year the counts went up they went up slowly but the you know the directors of the IGCT knew that it wasn't going to be a quick turnaround. Yeah. They especially knew, with five pairs as a starting point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like they they knew it was going to be a long drawn out process, and it could be possibly you know a, a ten year period until they started to get anywhere near um, where they would like you know where where they were were aiming to be. So uh, yeah. Hmm. It's a it's a massive massive undertaking. Yeah. Um, so, what? Just paint a picture of the landscape here for people, um, and and the kind of terrain that's here. Because although I haven't managed to see that much of it today because of the <laughs> because of the weather, uh, I, I've seen little bits of heather, but it's not uh, you know where I come from on the east coast of yeah. Scotland. It has been managed as such for many 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 years. Yeah. So when you look at that hillside, it, it's very distinctive Heather Merland, whereas here it's way more broken. Yeah. You can see a lot of um, the impacts of agriculture and yeah. grazing by sheep, yeah. which you're working to uh, correct and restore, especially with regard to forestry. So you, what are you doing with um, regard to land management in that way? L- land management, um, it's uh, there's a, a lot of things that we're, we're involved in at the minute. So, um, yeah, I've lost track today. As you've yeah, been telling me all things. Like, um, like here where it, it's a heather, very heathery, like mixture of, of grasses. It's a very heathery, grassy, uh, moorland. Um, we, we do like the grasses. Um, it, pro- it provides a lot more insect life for chicks than, uh, a solid bed of heatherwood. Um, and, the sheep obviously benefit from that as well, so we can sort of uh, we can manage the hill to sh- to suit both uh, livestock for the farmers as as well as uh, the grouse, the golden plover, the curlew, the lapwing, and the snipe. Um, heather burning that's always been like a key tool. Uh, anytime it's dry, we you know we 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 then go out and carry out burning. That's absolutely essential. And not why is that? Like just to explain that process. Not, I think it's it's not necessarily well understood. People see, oh, the hills are on fire. Again, yeah, yeah, every season. And, yeah, you know, for people who don't understand it, it's it looks just destructive. Yeah, I mean, the the main reason why we burn, uh, we we need fresh heather to come. You know, we need fresh heather to come through. Um, an old 10, 15 year old bed of heather would hold uh, absolutely no nutritional value in at all. Um, other than cover that would be the, the the only benefit of it which we also do do need as well um our aim is not to eliminate uh, all long heather uh, but we we burn patches which might maybe an acre or two acres in size uh, and it's and we burn like a, a patchwork effect throughout the hill so what that does is it, it creates uh, multiple territories for grouse um but the golden plover, uh, any breeding wade also benefits from that as well. It creates a foraging habitat for uh, the likes of uh, nesting or wintering golden plover. Uh, even the curlew, the, the curlew chicks can forage through it. A curlew chick would really struggle to walk through a real high, um, dense bed of heather. Uh, 
the sheep as well also benefit from it as well and we can also use that to our advantage because when we do put the sheep out on the hill we don't want them to just sit and graze around the gate the the burning also uh it attracts uh fresh uh growths of grass as well so there's a lot more nutrition in the grass that's that's uh, come back through from the fresh fires so that also with the patchwork effect spreads the sheep out throughout the entire hill as well why do you want sheep on the hill we need sheep there to graze the grass the the problem is uh because it is a very grassy heathery mix if we were to to manage the hill um ex- for example if we were to to burn uh, an acre size patch of heather the grass would be the first to come through uh, so it's just smother out the heather yeah so we need the grass to be grazed uh, in order for the heather to come through you see uh, and also for um for example a grouse chick would be no bigger than an egg and if the hill was covered in real tall tight knitted grass they can't get around it couldn't it couldn't yeah it couldn't get through it so oh, okay so you you have this uh, this give and take relationship between yeah um sheep being on the hill for purposes of livestock production yeah. And what you're trying to achieve, yeah, in terms of biodiversity and that's, habitat. That's right. The heather, the heather burning, and the sheep grazing, it, it coincides with each other, and and it's uh, that's our management tool. That's what sort of makes us look slightly different to what your um, other moors would would be managed in the mainland. And you were telling me um, just before we move off sheep, you were telling me something interesting about um, a study which had been done uh, mm. on sheep which actually facilitated you changing the breed that you had out on the hill which I thought was fascinating when you showed me the map. Yeah, so th- there, was, uh, there was a lot of trials that had went on, um, different experiments with different breeds of sheep and they found that the pure Scottish blackface actually suited the hill a lot more than what the, the Texel uh, blackface crosses uh, did. So... We'd, we'd radio collared a, a flock of blackface ewes and radio collared a flock of uh, Texel cross blackface ewes and uh, we'd put them out onto the hill and what we got every 30 minutes was different dots of where the sheep were uh, and we found that the pure Scottish blackface actually grazed the hill um, a lot more. Um, they spread out a hell of a lot more Whereas the the crosses they they were just basically waiting at the gate. So they were just lazy. They were just lazy. Yeah, <laughs> they they didn't like getting their feet wet. <laughs> yeah, and when you like when you visually see it on the map with the blue and red dots that you showed me, it was yeah. just so obvious. Yeah, you just had this densely packed blue dots all around where essentially they'd been kicked out on the other That's side of right. the fence, and then this pretty dispersed. Um, series of, of red dots, which was the the Scottish blackface yeah. a- across the whole area. Yeah, it's uh, it yeah, it was something. Whose idea was that, by the way? It, it was at, it was Caffrey's. Um, they have a, a they have a team of, of sheep technologists. Caffrey's um, being Caffrey are Caffrey. Sorry, yeah, they are um, essentially the Department of Agriculture, okay. um, and they they were interested. Um, they you know it, it was them that really wanted to try this out. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it, yeah, a brilliant idea. And, yeah. and, uh, and have you, how long ago was that that you switched? 
that was five years ago. And do you think you've been able to see a difference? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, like we always monitor our fresh burnt areas anyway. Okay. Um, most of my time is spent walking around the hill, looking at fires, looking at work that I've done, um, especially, you know, looking at fires that I've burnt maybe uh, a year ago or six months ago, just to have a look at the new growth. And one of the things that I'll be doing whilst I'm out there is is monitoring the grazing as well. So, for example, if I think that the the sheep have spent enough time out on the hill and they've grazed enough, um, possibly they might be overgrazing it, I would then speak to the shepherd and say, could we please take the flock off, off the hill now? Um, and then we would keep them off for uh, maybe a, a couple couple of months, maybe four months, and then we would we would put them back out again to do the exact same job. Mm. This is being done in collaboration with a, a lot of research, um, a lot of testing, which yeah. you're involved in and your various government departments are involved in and other NGOs. Explain that relationship that you have yeah. because I think it's, it's rather unique and I think with a view to um, management, particularly in the uplands moving forward in other parts of the country, yeah. I think it's something that we could definitely learn from. And I, and I dare say it probably played a role in you guys winning the, the Purdy Award. Yeah. This, this yeah. you know, fantastic relationship that you seem to be able to balance, which can uh, or and has caused conflict in the past yeah. in other places in other yeah. parts of the country. At Greenmount, um, on, on Glenwary Farm, we have uh, the a board called the Glenwary Hill Regeneration Project. Um, and it, it's a, a multi-partnership project. So um, all the work that we do up here is uh, it's it's monitored by the likes of AFBI. Um, RSPB come in to monitor the breeding wader population, not just the breeding wader population, but also the, the songbirds as well, the meadow pipits and the skylarks. So we really rely on RSPB to carry out um, the, the bird surveys and tell us how many how many um, breeding waders we have and they're, they're, they're the professionals they they really know how to how to, to survey um, we have the Northern Ireland Raptor Study Group so they would come in in the springtime and they would carry out surveys for um, Hen Harrier or Merlin they would uh, even keep an eye out for the odd red kite and mm. things like that. And, so and it was, that was the group that you got the information about the Merlins. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, they're actually they're, they're quite quite good to work with. Um, they uh, and and they promote predator control, don't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they they're spending most of their time traveling uh, all through Northern Ireland just to monitor uh, Hen Harriers and Merlin. Their experience over the past, say, 15 years, they they have seen predation taking the lives of, of so many um, Hen Harrier chicks or Merlin chicks. They know that predation is a problem. And, f for example, the successes of the project here at Glenwerry, uh, where we've been carrying out pretty intense predator control, uh, they know predator control is key to the survival of, of any ground nesting bird. Hmm. So they're seeing that they're seeing the benefits of the work that you're doing on the yeah, ground. Yeah, yeah. It must be hard for them in other parts of the country where they're trying to achieve what is clearly being achieved here. Yeah. But you have the resources by virtue of the trust that uh, 
funds you yeah. and all the equipment that is around here and anyone else who's involved or employed throughout the season yeah. to do these activities. But in other parts of the country where this predation is taking, um, taking place in just the same way, I guess they must struggle to fund that yeah, predation I, control. It just doesn't exist yet. Okay. Um, so they just have to watch it and... Yeah. Well, one of the main objectives of the IGCT uh, is to promote marlin management. Um, we don't just want Glenwerry to be the only only moor in Northern Ireland to have have a large number of grouse. You know, we want to promote this and push it out to um, to other organisations, uh, to other landowners. And so with this as a kind of model of collaborative working, yeah. about how, how you can achieve this. Yeah, th- this is a prime example of um, good partnership working, um, the benefits of predator control and habitat management. Uh, it's, not, it's definitely not easy. Um, not everyone could do it, but I think it, it has to be replicated elsewhere because our hill to have 65% of the grouse population in, in the whole of Northern Ireland. It's crazy. It's, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. And uh, it's... It, uh, on, it's on, on what is essentially a thousand acres yeah, of prime. Yeah. Uh, and, and I dare say that there are more suitable areas in Northern Ireland. There, there are places, there are, there, there's hills elsewhere that are absolutely stunning for a, for a grouse keeper to look at yeah. and to see that it's unmanaged. It, the potential is the there. Pote- the potential that's there. It, it, it's uh, it's mouth-watering for myself, <laughs> but um, uh, as well as devastating at the same time um, to look at and and think you know that you know that place could be absolutely um, heaving with with wildlife. You know it should be there should be um, curlew there. There should be grouse. There should be everything there. Everything's there. It's it's just not um, it's just not managed for it. Mm. Uh, we we got uh, sidetracked talking about I can't remember on onto something, but one of my my thought processes earlier about something I wanted to ask you about, or certainly to describe, was how the landscape has been um, degraded in that sort of previous fifty years. Like one example that we were looking at today as we were driving around, we were seeing little remnants of whether there where there used to be heather merland, and then that's just it. Like literally a couple of plants, and then pretty. Um, uninteresting grassland all the way until you get into the sort of Heather Merland again with big drains you know, cut through it, which is now just short grass used for grazing. But that would have historically been open Heather Merland. Yeah, there's areas here, Ballyboley Forest, which sits on the south side of the hill, that's uh, nearly um, 1,200 acres. And that used to be all... Heather Moreland, you know, it was probably one of the best uh, hills in in the glens of Antrim. Uh, unfortunately, forest the forestry was planted, and uh, that you know that just destroyed the habitat. There's also areas where farming has been um, brought into the into it, and the the farming practices have changed so much from from uh back in the 50s to to now it's a lot more intense now and there were grants actually uh given to farmers to bring heathery hills into uh, grazing pastures so there's been so much uh heather moorland so much habitat lost just just to 
at more intense farming practices. Mm. It's worth highlighting here one of the great tree planting travesties in Scotland. For thousands of years, the flow country was largely untouched. Now, this is an area in northern Scotland around Caithness, if you want to find it on a map. But during the 20th century, vast improvements of technology meant that this land, which was basically a bog and seen as barren and useless in terms of agricultural production, could suddenly be drained and trees could be planted on it. To help encourage this, there were government tax incentives at the time, during sort of the 70s and 80s, and this led to a big increase in forest planting, and large areas of this bog, which had been treeless for thousands of years, was drained with deep furrows cut into the peat to reduce the water table and planted in fast-growing conifers. Today, by and large, all of these plantations have failed. There was never supposed to be trees planted on blanket bog, and they never really produced any economic timber. The only thing they did manage to do was destroy vast areas of a very fragile ecosystem. As far as I know, most of these plantations have now been removed, and the Scottish government has dedicated £8 million to help restore some of Scotland's peatlands. Their ambition is that this restoration work will help reduce the country's greenhouse gas emissions by locking carbon into the environment. What will be interesting to see is how this view sits along their new tree planting targets. Hopefully, the lessons of the past have been learnt. And there, and there was draining as well. I mean, I think we, we, we saw some of that today. Yeah. I mean, that's true in Scotland, it's true in England as yeah. well, where the, you can see that. The, the draining's so bad here. Uh, there's two reasons. The the hill, there's so much water coming off, off the hill, and uh, originally the hill was a, a bog as such, and they needed the, the hill to be drier, they needed the ground to be dry for order, for in, in order for the, the grass to grow a lot quicker. Um, and also the drains that have been put in are, are just grips and they're quite deep grips. And Which are just straight channels. Just just straight channels and they could be every 30, 40, uh, up to 50 metres um, on each each sort of row. And that creates a huge hazard for, for any ground nesting bird as well. Of course, falling in it. Falling in it and they're, and they're also restricted to, to one area. Yeah, because they can't cross it until they get big enough. Exactly. So <laughs> that that's also been uh, one of the things that we've done up on our own hill as well, because uh, there has been grips put in years and years ago. So what we'd done, we'd actually covered those grips up. Um, in some areas, we'd, we'd blocked them up to slow the, slow the water down. Um, so restoring how it would have more naturally been. Yeah. 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 Keep, keeping, retaining water on the hill. Yeah, just to try and... Like, Keep the water up there. We need we need water for the grouse as well. Um, we we do like a lot wetter areas. That's so much more beneficial to to any chick, uh, not just grouse, but uh, those wetter areas that hold a lot of sphagnum. They produce so much more um, insect life, and that's absolutely crucial, uh, especially for grouse because uh, grouse they predominantly survive on um on insects invertebrates for up to uh two to three weeks of so that's essential yeah without yeah. that you won't have grass yeah exactly that's interesting because you know one of the things that we've seen particularly recently on social media and in the news 
is this uh, emphasis on trying to restore peat box. Yeah. In a, but the way that it's talked about, it's it's often in a way that, well, if you have managed grouse shooting, it's at the detriment of peat bogs. Yeah. That's how it's being discussed in the media, but yeah. the way that you're just describing it now, no. this is a, a, a vital bloodline yeah. for you to be able to produce grouse. Exactly. Which is obviously, you know, that is uh, one of the main drivers. We've we've already talked about a lot of the spin-off benefits of that, but it's obviously a main driver. Well, th this is hugely uh, controversial, but it was never gamekeepers that drained uh, Marland. Shock horror. So, uh, you know, that a, a lot of people would blame, especially at the minute because the weather's been so bad and people have oh, been getting flooding. Yeah. There's areas that's been getting flooded and grouse keepers are getting the blame. But there's actually no evidence of the likes of Heather burning uh, or the, our management process uh, being having anything to do with the flooding. It, basically, when it rains a lot, it floods, you know. Um, it doesn't take a genius to, to work that out. Only um, last week, I had a chance to speak with Andrew Gilruth from the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, and I asked him this very question about flooding. This is what he had to say. Yeah, and that, that's understandable, because whenever there's any terrible incident, the first thing that people want to do is, is to find something to blame. It's normally either the environment agency or someone has been managing the land around them. Um, but in actual fact, um, when the um, EFRA, the Environment Select Committee at Westminster, investigated flooding um, after the floods on the Somerset levels, they actually looked nationally at flooding. And not only did they not find any evidence that, that burning and ground smalls are, are causing flooding, nobody even presented any evidence to them. And I've been back through all the paperwork. Nobody presented any evidence that that was actually even the case. So it's quite, it's quite a new idea, um, and it is just an idea. There isn't, there isn't actually any substantial evidence um, that it does does cause flooding. So, it, it, but it, you know, if there are effects, it might well just be localized effects. In which case, you need a local solution. But also, um, like that, like we were just saying just a few minutes ago, all the 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 grips and drainage that was put in for agriculture from yeah. like around the seventies, yeah, that certainly will have contributed to taking yeah. water off the hill quicker. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the gamekeepers, like we need water up there. We, it, especially for a dry summer, for example. Um, even back in two thousand and eighteen, was the driest oh, spring we four we'd months ever had. of no rain. Yeah, almost, and it yeah. it was absolutely devastating for the biodiversity. Uh, it, the wildlife just suffered extremely badly. Um, it was so dry up there that the invertebrates, there, there was no insect life at all. So um, what we've been doing for 10, 15, 20 years, we've been blocking drains to try and hold the water back up there to try and create a wetter bog in order for invertebrates to flourish there. Um and also the benefit is that the ground nesting birds also have a food source for three we three weeks after first hatching. Mm. Just going back to forestry, you're like you were talking about some of the uh, the moorland that's been lost as yeah. a result of planting. When we were driving around, there's a lot of pine forests which have been felled, 
and you're returning that to Heather Merlin. Yeah. Is, is this part of uh, study and, and research? Because in, in lots of other parts, uh, like if you listen to the discussion that is really hot right now in Scotland, it is that we need to be planting more trees and yet you guys just cut down a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how does that work? Well, like, the reason, main reason why we had taken uh, the forestry down was we were actually losing more carbon with the trees being there. Um, the, the carbon with the, the biodegraded carbon was actually running through the drains that were put in um, through the eroding peat in within the forestry. The question of sequestering carbon in this dwarf shrub heath and peak bog ecosystem is a complex matter. So complex, in fact, that despite the fact that I've consumed at least 15 scientific papers on it, it seems that more research is needed to fully comprehend the trade-offs as we deliberate tree planting initiatives and the use of burning for management and the risk of wildfires in this landscape. I am writing a whole feature on this in the next issue of Modern Huntsman, Volume 5, which actually you can pre-order now. Go and check out modernhuntsman.com if you're in the US, and the rest of the world, go over to thepacebrothers.com, and you can get your order in now and read the outcome of all of the research that I've been doing on this very thing. Okay. Um, we had um, re- we've now removed 175 hectares of forestry up there, which is going to be uh, completely re-wetted. Um, there's going to be a lot of uh, drain blocking up there, so we're trying to keep as much water up there as we possibly can. Um, there's going to be three different trial pot- plots, so there's going to be a little bit of ground smoothing, which is where uh, we level all the furrows, which are uh, in between where each tree has been planted. And um, and then there's going to be other bits as well. The higher ground is going to be reseeded back to heather. Um, so that will create not just one habitat, but multiple habitats for multiple different species. Hmm. But you've... I mean, this isn't just you doing it here with the trust you're going to have science and people studying yeah. this to find out what the long-term implications of this actually yeah are. exactly at the minute we have two phd students here um this is probably the most um scientific uh thing that we've done here so far um it's it's quite it's quite a biggie. This forestry has been we've been trying to take this out for for ten years, um, mainly because there's been so much issues come out of the forestry. The forestry should have never been planted. The trees weren't actually growing anymore because they were planted in the wrong place. So, so as a as a harvestable crop, it probably wasn't worth it, that much. No, anyway. the the trees that are there now aren't. They're not worth anything, and they never were going to be. Uh, within uh, 10 or 15 years, it, it would have just been uh, a forest full of dead trees, oh, essentially. Windblow mess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is, it, you know, already, the, you know, the trees are, or the trees were still standing and the the predators that it was housing in there was was uh, causing a lot of issues for, for ground nesting birds. Um, I dare say even now, the forestry has only been cleared. It just finished um, just nearly a week ago, and just since myself seeing you know the process of the trees coming down, I've already seen more grouse this winter than I have 
previous winters. And I think that's just due to um, the fact that the forestry has been constantly, there's been disturbance in there from the machines taking it down. And obviously it's got smaller and smaller. So the, the predator issue, I wouldn't say has gone altogether, but it's definitely lessened. And hopefully in a few years' time, some of these big questions are going to be answered. This is the this, this studying uh, yeah. that's going on as to, is this a better way um, to sequester carbon, for example? Or is it, um, have you improved water quality as a result of it? These are the kind of questions that they want to answer. Yeah, b- because it, it's, it's an experiment and uh, we're, try- we're trying to take like multiple things from it um, we're trying to we, we want we will get better water quality uh, without a doubt uh, but the the biggest thing is is the carbon so we're trying to because there's quite a lot of exposed peat in there and and the, there is some dry areas obviously because there's been there's been tree planted there so the water's not not got the, the water table's got that low we need uh, we need that to, to become essentially a, a bog again so we need the sphagnum to flourish in there again. Uh, sphagnum, as you know, holds, you know, it's nearly a carpet it's or like a, a sponge, a, a, isn't it? Yeah, blockage yeah. For, for carbon. So, um, yeah, th- there's a lot to come out of it yet. And there's, I think there's so much that um, we don't quite understand yet, but that's, uh, that's why we experiment with, with the different things. Fantastic. Um, are there any other... Um are there any other studies or research that has either gone on while, while you've been here in the past or they're working on in the future? One of, uh, one of the most important ones was the vegetation monitoring, which is carried out by AFBI. And uh, we're quite lucky to have uh, Dr. Jim McAdam, and he's one of the leading scientists in, um, uh, in, in AFBI. And he's been here for, for years. He's seen the place um, in its highs and its lows. Um, what AFBI do is they carry out the vegetation monitoring for um, for the entire uh, entire hill. So they would also monitor monitor the uh, grazing regimes, uh, monitor the the fires that we do, the the patchwork effect. Every single fire is GPSed, and so then they're actually analysing your muir burn. They're 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 mate, yeah they're huh. they're studying the the regrowth, the regeneration of burnt heather, uh, not just burnt heather, but uh, also the different uh, species of grasses as well. Um, and they'd done uh, an outstanding report, and they had uh, shown us on paper this was a, a five year document. And uh, they'd been monitoring the the effects of blanket bog and heather burning, and uh, the end result was that there was no effect uh, whatsoever on the blanket bog with with heather burning. That's interesting, and I, I should caveat this with saying there'll be people going, "Yeah, but you can't burn on blanket bog anyway." But you guys had exemptions for this for scientific testing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because it's a demonstration farm, we're trying to find the best methods of, of managing heather um, and also heather blanket bogs as well. Yeah, well, that's and and this is independent research. Yeah, yeah, amazing. I want to speak a little bit about your background because we've kind of skipped over the fact that yeah. I assumed that you were you were already here um you're obviously a gamekeeper yeah where did you start was it something you always wanted to do because you're now you're involved in something which is kind of at the the forefront of uh, research and analysis and management with regard to grouse 
you know, across the, the UK. Um, I bet you never saw yourself in the position you're in now a decade ago. No, uh, to, to be honest, I, I I never imagined myself to be a or the only grouse keeper in, in Northern Ireland at, at any stage. <laughs> That's but quite a title. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I originally, um, I started at, at Strines, which is uh, it's quite commonly known as Bradfield Moor in the Peak District. And uh, I served my, I actually trained there. I did a college course through Bishop Burton College, and that was uh, that was eleven years ago now. So um, ever since since I left school, I was fifteen when I actually started started uh, out on the on the grouse. So um, I, I was at, I did my training, and I was I was an apprentice while I was there. And I actually lived in a in a caravan for two years whilst I was serving my my apprenticeship, and it wasn't just your typical static caravan it was a, a tow along we're, you know, we're, we're going out for the weekend type of caravan so it wasn't exactly homely no not exactly but um it didn't put you off it was the best it was the best thing ever yeah you know, it was the best thing ever I, there was some mornings it was that cold um <laughs> my, my curtains on the caravan window were actually stuck to the inside of the caravan um yeah it was i mean it was rough at times but i was i was maybe 15 or 16 years old. Yeah, it was you're the just best thing ever. Yeah, I'd, I'd, Independence. Yeah, I'd left home and yeah. left home with no GCSEs. And <laughs> oh, oh, really? So you didn't, yeah. you, you didn't bag any? Yeah, no, no. I, 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 I did terrible so that was school. So school was not your thing? No, no not exactly. <laughs> no, um, not ex- not, not exactly. exactly. I think that's... I want you to carry on your story, but I just I want to just pause for a second because I think that that says a lot about you know, clearly this is something which you're massively passionate about. Yeah. And I've been talking to you all day and you've been filling my brain with information. I'm fortunate enough to speak to a lot of, you know, very smart, very educated people on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, doctors of various different ologies. Yeah. And this is something that you are massively passionate about. And so despite the fact you've got this by your own admission, this like missing part of your yeah. early education you are massively knowledgeable about what you're passionate about yeah. because it's what you absorb yourself in. And there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, it's been it's been a huge, uh, well, it, it has been my life. Uh, great grouse keeping isn't, um, isn't a job as such. It, it's a lifestyle choice. Um, it's something that I've enjoyed and I've been passionate about since a young age. And I found um, if you do, you know, if you're really enjoy something you, you're constantly learning all the time you don't even realize it yeah. um and you and you retain it yeah yeah if you're passionate exactly about it. Uh, most of my friends the people that i speak to are all gamekeepers or conservationists so um 90 of my uh, phone calls or just general conversations are about conservation or about grouse so uh, it, it it quite easily rolls off its own yeah okay <laughs> yeah so how did you get from that to 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 here like how did you because this is quite a this is an amazing job yeah to have, to have been enlisted i uh I, I was at abbeystead estate i was working for the duke of westminster um and uh, previously before that i was working at mosca estate um for jeremy archdale and um Going back to uh, Abbeystead, I, I enjoyed it. It was it was a great place, uh, amazing place. You're extremely well looked after, um, and I was very honoured to be there. Uh, 
I was flicking through the shooting times one day and I found an advert for a, a single-handed grouse keeper's job and uh I didn't I didn't I didn't put in for it straight away and uh, it was it was going through my head a little bit all the time and um I I'd been following the Irish Grouse Conservation Trust for a while because I'd always admired the the work that they were doing and uh I was very optimistic because I was only I was only 20 23 at the time and I, I thought oh, I'm not you know I'm not gonna get I'm too young I'm too young they'll never take me on um and and I thought uh I, I basically I got a CV together and I thought I'll just send it see what I'll happens. just send it uh and within a week I had a phone call from Adrian Morrow and he invited me over for uh, an interview and a little bit of a tour around and I came over and I, I really didn't know what what to expect. Um, it was it wasn't the landscape that I fell in love with. It was the idea of uh, of of working on a blank canvas, uh, producing wildlife from nothing. Yeah, you know, it was that that attracted me uh, to to the to the project, and I wanted to prove not just. Uh, to myself but to others that um i was capable of taking on such a task um a lot of people have told me oh um you'll not do you know you'll not produce grouse there or you know certain places in scotland that people would say oh they'll not they'll not produce there um but i like to think you know for say northern ireland or anywhere else where people would have their doubts if if you can produce grouse on an underachieving moor or on a moor where you face multiple challenges, you can produce grouse anywhere um, to the highest standard as well. Now, talking of Adrian, we've actually got a meeting uh, very soon. Yeah. So I'm just, uh, as a way to wrap this podcast up and take it back to where our conversation started, winner of the Purdy Awards. What does that mean to you and to this whole operation here to have you know received like well i mean for a start just like what did you physically get from from purdy and what do you think it means in terms of like the status that 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 has achieved it means it means so much um especially for the directors um of the irish grouse conservation trust because they've been putting money into this for uh for, for a large number of years now um and we really want to now now we're in the sort of success stages um of of the project we've you know we've really turned the place around and there's so much coming out of it now we really want to show people um and the purdy award was a perfect opportunity of of getting you know getting this thing out there and getting it publicized a little bit more uh we want the place to be recognised elsewhere, um, not just not just Ireland, but uh, obviously England as well. And the Purdy Award really puts us alongside some of the the big estates. Um, for example, uh, the uh, the Roxburgh estate they'd cut, they'd got the silver, um, and to be in the same league as as them is just yeah, it's. It's amazing. It's an amazing feeling. Mm. That's great. Well, biggest of congratulations. It was uh, it was awesome to see everybody smiling on the night because I was I was there in London. 
Uh, it's been great wandering around with you today. Tomorrow, the weather is going to be better. I have every yeah. faith in the weather forecast. So I'm going to see a little bit more of the hill. Yeah. We're going to do a bit more photography. And uh, I'm looking forward to writing up the story for Modern Huntsman. So thanks very much for your time, Alex. Yeah, thank you. And that's a wrap. Join me in two weeks' time where we will all take another walk into the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs>